0: Monaco & Culture is brought to you in association with the all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence, electrified. The Cadillac Lyric delivers a sporty, responsive and agile drive that makes every mile a milestone. This groundbreaking Ultium EV battery platform fundamentally changes how electric vehicles are engineered delivering charging and power storage technologies that fit seamlessly into far-reaching journeys and daily commutes. The Lyric is a vehicle that balances the central and the technical in masterful harmony, where rhythm, form and colour unite. From emergency braking to intelligent alerts, parking assistance to vehicle monitoring, the Cadillac Smart System suite of safety and driver assistant features, standard on the Lyric, means you'll drive with added confidence. While innovations like available Super Cruise driver assistance technology and Google built-in set a new standard for technical prowess. Take the next step. Head to cadillac.com now to configure your car. The all-electric 2024 Cadillac Lyric. Magnificence electrified.
1: Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture, I'm Robert Bound. It is our final show of the year and undoubtedly 2022 has been chock full of major moments in the sphere of culture, from the slap that dealt the Academy Awards a mighty blow to the end of a 13-year wait for the second Avatar movie, not to mention the return of an 80s hit as the unlikely soundtrack to summer
2: 2022. If could, I'd
3: make a deal with-
1: And on Monocle on Culture, we've had quite the year ourselves. On today's show, we'll be hearing from the best of this year's programmes, including the likes of the literary genius Ali Smith, the music industry legend Chris Blackwell and genre-defying composer Benjamin Clementine. So as we bid farewell to 2022, here are some of our very favourite Monocle on Culture moments. We're starting off with the man credited with bringing Jamaican music to the masses. But Island Records founder Chris Blackwell played crucial roles in the careers of Nick Drake and John Martin, as well as Grace Jones and Bob Marley. I was delighted to have Chris walk me through how he took his first step into the music production business in the late 1950s on the island of Jamaica.
4: How it kind of started becoming a producer, as it were, because there was a band playing at the Half Moon Hotel near Montego Bay. And I had a job at the Half Moon Hotel teaching water skiing, which was actually, I rather (laughs) enjoyed This is how everyone gets into record production, obviously. That's right. (laughs) So the band was playing one night. This band actually were brought in from Bermuda. They weren't Jamaicans. I was listening to them, and I thought they sounded really good. Mm -hmm. And when they stopped, I, I went to them and said, boy, I think you guys sound really good. I'd love to record you. Now I didn't know anything about recording anybody. I'd probably had a couple of drinks, and why I said that, so you know, I didn't really know <laughs> what I was doing. But that's what happened. And they said, oh, "Well, we'd really like to do that." So I said, "Well, yes, let's. We'll do that." So two or three days go by, and of course I'd f- f- kind of forgotten about it. And on the third day, one of the one of the guys came up to me and said, uh, 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 "What about that recording idea?" And I said, yes, of course, of course. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry I forgot it. I'll do it. I'll, let's do it. We'll do it tomorrow. That's what I did. So I rented a Volkswagen bus, and we all drove in from Montego Bay into Kingston. And um, I'd already booked a, head, a studio because I knew the, the guy who owned the studio and owned the pressing plant, etc. I knew him. So I drove in. And then we went in and the band went into the studio and I went into the control room, the sort of room above with the owner of the studio. So he was doing it, working the, the things. And, and I you was were up keeping there. it cool. You obviously knew exactly what you were doing. <laughs> well, I knew, I knew that what I was trying to do, you know. So the first tune was played and the leader of the band which I didn't neglect to say. The band, the leader of the the band was blind, in fact. So he looked up and said, what do you think? And I I didn't know quite what to say. And he said, "Um, would you like us to record it again? And I said, yes. The moment he put his hands down to play, I said, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. It's having that element of sort of
1: control or veto over proceedings, these wonderful creative things that are happening just... Through a pane of glass away, I suppose. That hit home immediately, that, the sort of satisfaction, the slightly like addictive nature of, of being with these kinds of people, these creative people, I suppose. Yes,
4: exactly. I loved it. So that's really how it started. Then from what I would do is I'd go to different shows when there were any shows where there'd be somebody, maybe the, the main singer or the, the, a lead person, and they'd, they'd book other new Guys who are starting to sing, etc. I go to different cinemas, which is where they'd have these uh, Mm -hmm. shows. And on one of them, I went. There was this one guy who was singing, and I thought, boy, this guy's really got a great voice. He sounds like Brooke Benton at that time. Brooke Benton was one of my favorite singers. So I went backstage after it was finished, and I went to him, and I said, Oh, I thought you were a really good singer. I'd love to record you. And he said, yeah, that would be great. And then another person was just standing a little bit away, you know, and he came over and said, well, what about me? I'd like to make a record too. And then another person (laughs) said, what about me? So I said, okay, so we'll do it with all three of you. And it wasn't the three were working together. They were just three individual guys who were there doing their gig. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? So we went in the studio and the first record was called um, Little Sheila. Yeah. And that was a guy called Laura Aitken. So that was the first record. And I put it out and it went to number one. <laughs> Not because it was the best record ever at the time, but because it was the first record that Jamaicans heard a Jamaican singing.
0: Has left me and I've gone away. I went my baby has left me and I've gone away. You know, my baby
1: have left me. In the, the inimitable Chris Blackwell there. <laughs> As part of an episode celebrating the release of Paul Gorman's excellent book, The Rise and Fall of the Music Press, we invited in two of the UK's most exciting music reviewers, Laura Snapes and Natty Kazambala, to discuss their experience of working within the music press. Is Laura on whether it's possible to be objective within the form.
3: You know, I try not to write first person unless you you are having an interaction with somebody where you cannot remove yourself from the room and still write about it in a way that actually feels authentic. Mm. But everything is filtered through your perceptions, your values. You know, those values can get challenged in the course of something. But, you know, I can, obviously only I would be able to do this and nobody else would care to. But I could look back at pieces that I've written throughout the past, like, 12 years of doing this properly Mm. and guess pretty effectively where I was at the time based on maybe the sorts of questions that you're asking because I suppose when you do an interview as well and when you're younger you're often bouncing your ideas about the world off somebody else and see how they respond and validate that or go well no but what about this so yeah like one of the stupidest comments that you get online and under uh, underneath reviews and stuff is people being like well this wasn't an objective review and it's like reviews aren't objective it's not maths Yeah. yeah That too is.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
5: yeah I think, Silently
1: exclaiming. <laughs> like uh, vigorously nodding yeah, my head.
5: Yeah. I think that's something that, yeah, a lot of people could bear to remember as well. And even reviewers as well in terms of like, you know, being aware of the fact that everything that they view is, is through their lens rather than something that can be kind of like dubbed object, an objective fact about whether something is good or bad although some things are actually bad. But I think as, as well, I kind of had the reverse problem where I started out definitely coming from that perspective of, like, keep yourself out of it and just tell, like, the story, like, almost overthinking and trying to be the person who can determine whether something is good or, you know, what I think about a person or just presenting them without my own landscape. And then I had to kind of, after I tried to get more comfortable with writing, I had to learn how to, like, Value my own experience again and my own perspective, and what it can bring to something, mm-hmm. and how it is kind of the thing that makes your profile or your essay different from the next one. And, and
1: I mean, but I mean, obviously, this also comes off the back of your deep burning desire to, to write about Prince and how much you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you love the music of yeah. Prince, which sounded very personal. And that's yeah. kind of presumably all, all where it comes from, right? That's the wellspring of the stuff. It's like you love the music in the first place.
5: Exactly, exactly. I think that's really, really key.
1: Laura, I'd like to know, um, and I'll turn to you for this, um, about the sort of the the, the metabolism of of, um, music writing in the digital age now. I mean, you came from working on a print weekly, which had a very, very obvious kind of kind of way it worked. And it seems that digital is a lot more sporadic and maybe takes a lot more out of writers because you've got to there are so many times of the day or times of the week when you've got to be filing copy and reacting to things is it is that how it feels going from print to digital
3: yeah, I, th- I think obviously digital really accelerated things where previously you would have your like weekly news dose on the fr- in the front sort of 12 pages of NME, then suddenly you have the music news industrial complex and especially around the point of like 2012 when somebody like Grimes starts getting really big and she does a lot of kind of controversial things, Pitchwalks start reporting on her in the same way that Perez Hilton used to report on like Britney Spears mm. and that set a tone where then all of their competitors start doing the same because they're all trying to hoover up the same sort of SEO. And I think that has a huge effect on artists and about trust between artists and the press you know a lot of artists hate doing that and they also became the less inflammatory ones became scared of saying anything because you don't want it to be kind of written up in a headline Mm. so I think that's one really really huge change SEO is obviously like a huge driving thing I'll scroll down my RSS sometimes and everybody's doing you know the week before Glastonbury articles on like what is the weather like at Glastonbury and what are blah 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 going to happen at Glastonbury Mm. just to kind of get any of that traffic but at the same time I think that there is a lot of there are a lot of publications who are putting really investing in great long form pieces and still getting access to great interviews and I think online is a place where investigations really thrive as well because what what might have been previously hidden in the pages of a magazine that might never have cared to investigate those things in the first place certainly if we're talking about you know sexual harassment and so on they were not feminist magazines even when I was working at them those things thrive online in a way that they could not have in the past.
1: Laura Snapes and Natty Kazambala there. We were totally enthralled by a particularly unique book this year, and that was Will Ashens' The Passengers. Over a a two-and-a-half-year period, Will captured people talking about their lives across the UK. The 180 snippets paint a wonderful collective picture of the country at this moment in time. And here's Will reading one vignette.
4: 17. It was a Tomasini, an Italian frame, but it had been painted up in this Midlands bike shop. It's hard to describe. The paintwork was shiny, that kind of oil on water effect, so it's cream but with a kind of oily water finish. And it had really straight tubes, lovely, really thin. I think it's really aesthetically pleasing. It's like the drawing that a child does of a bicycle. What I got really into as well were the lug works. That's where bits of the tubing join together. Back in the day, they would have these little separate pieces, lugs, and they started becoming really decorative. Tomasini has a little T cut out in the bottom bracket. It's the care. You look at it and you look at all the different things that have gone into it and it's something that someone made with their hands and did it with a lot of skill. It's an object made with love.
1: That was Will Ashen reading an excerpt from his wonderful book, The Passengers. Now, this year saw a new play at London's Young Vic Theatre called The Collaboration, and it told the story of notorious New York artists Andy Warhol and Jean-Michel Basquiat and their plans to hold a joint exhibition. The play was written by Anthony McCartan, directed by Kwame Kwe-Arma, also the director of The Young Vic, and starred Jeremy Pope and Paul Bettany. Kwame, Jeremy and Paul join me in the studio to tell me more about the play and his Kwame on the dark undertones of the script.
6: I think what we all try to do in the production actually is, uh, certainly for, for me, is that death is not the end of the story.
1: Yeah, indeed. Because Immortality, I guess, is the moral here. Do, do,
6: do you know what I mean? So, yeah. so actually, whatever it is that's hanging over, I think both of them are negotiating with. We're going to hit death, but, but no, it's it, not it, a
1: sombre thing. By any means, it's but very well, funny. I mean, it's yeah, like when yeah. when
6: when it comes, that's secondary. It's secondary to to what spirit we're endowing these pieces of art that will adorn walls forever and ever. And and so, uh, ultimately, it's, it's very interesting. I think that there's a war. No, war's too over-egged. Actually, there's a battle that, that's happening in our culture at the moment. Anyway, I mean, I'm not talking about the culture wars. But there's a battle between the application of the spirit and the application of the mind. And that's always been a war between the East and the West, or a battle between the East and the West. What's valid, what's not? Mm-hmm. Does cerebral activity equal the highest form of intelligence, or does soul, in, as... Demonstrated through a James Brown loop, yeah, or through you know through a, a tap dance. What is art? What is high art? And I think in a world where they're actually discussing high art, the application of the soul or the application of the mind. What we actually find by the end of the play, for me, is that both are valid.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
6: And I sit through two hours of of the debate that says we entered into this on one side or t'other, but if we get
7: it right, we will leave loving both of them right. and knowing both were valid. I think that's right, and there's, I, I yeah. think that, you know, the first act really opens you up, and you, you'll leave thinking you know what this show is, and then the second act is really explosive, and I think, I hope, the end of the play is kind of transcendent in that way because there is a sort of a, a collaboration.
5: <laughs>
1: <laughs> 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 is, uh, <laughs> is this the collaboration drinking yeah. game where yeah. every time you say yeah, the title, uh, yeah, you get yeah, to have a, to four four shots. Get a glass yeah, of Perrier water? The terrier, yeah. <laughs> um, I hear that you've done some painting. And this is what we, we see. I mean, some of this, you're facing the, the audience, you're facing the auditorium, some of it yeah. we're not. So we see what you, you and Paul are doing, Jeremy. I mean, that's there's <laughs> acting on stage and then there's yeah. pretending to be a, one of the greatest painters of all time on stage. Yeah, Discuss.
4: Discuss, yeah. <laughs> Let, let's chat. Um, it's actually really fun. Um, I say fun because I was, um, a bit nervous coming into it, knowing that we were going to recreate not just art, but Basquiat's work. It's like shit. All right. (laughs) But, um, but you know, I was fortunate to have some help in New York just kind of guide me on, you know, and we just started to explore, just paint, just, you know, not get focused on anything particular. And I surprised myself. I'm gonna gas myself because my. No, you don't He's have to good. gas yourself. Yo, my first I, I, word I, I, yo, yo, was yo, kind
6: of you, lit. You know, you don't, you, don't, you don't. It was lit. Gas, you don't have to gas yourself. Let me gas you. <laughs> because I'm not gonna lie, right? That, of course, directorially is the big thing. Yeah, How much art you see, what will the art look yeah. like, can the artists, can the actors. Because you don't want people getting out. Oh, that's not, that's not. Correct. No <laughs> and I'm not going to lie, Jeremy is absolutely right. That Oof. literally he created something and I went, Oh shit. Oh, that's some that's some beautiful stuff. Right. And Paul throughout it, Paul like does some stenciling and you can see it. Originally I had planned that we saw all of the art as they created it. Yeah. And actually due to how beautiful these actors recreate the art. I've literally been able to just rip it apart and just go, no, don't see that. We won't see that. We won't because they they did the work, particularly in our New York rehearsal time. They did the work. They did the painting. They learnt what it looked like and what it felt like, and now we see it. Mm. I've got to be honest. I landed on my feet. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Paul as well
1: as Andy's got to be so shy of that paintbrush to begin with, right? You've got. I mean, that's you know, it's like. You know the game operation where you have to put the, yeah, Yeah. so it's a bit, I feel like you're a little bit like that, not wanting to touch the sides.
7: Yeah, I I think that's right. (laughs) I also think that what happened in the way that we're doing it, which has been so fortuitous, is that the most important painting is the one that will actually be seen being created on, because, you know, it's the, what they call it, the law of uh, diminishing returns, you know, if you're, and, and by the way... They were quick at painting, but we'd be there all night. <laughs> <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. 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 How much time <laughs> you got? Yeah. Yeah. Keep an audience.
6: <laughs> uh, if you just pause now, while they just <laughs> fill in the background, yeah. people get out. Program. We continue so on five intervals. Of this. Yeah.
4: yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that was Kwame Kwe Arma, Jeremy Pope, and Paul Betany. The best-selling novelist Mohsin Hamid also visited the studio to talk about his latest book, The Last White Man. Modelled on Kafka's The Metamorphosis, the story follows a man, Anders, who one day wakes up with darker skin. I asked him how he kept the novel's particular style intact throughout its pages.
2: I had this idea that there would be these long sentences and that within a particular sentence we would encounter different viewpoints. So you'd be in Anders' head. Then you'd be in Anders' father's head. Then you'd be sort of this omniscient third-person perspective looking at the whole world from above. And as the sentences got you comfortable with the idea of shifting perspective within a sentence, mm. in a sense that would echo the character shifting their perspective and maybe the reader shifting their perspective. And also building sentences where something is said and then it's sort of qualified, maybe from somebody else's point of view, maybe the idea is played with, maybe something from the past is brought up. I think that, that human thought is fluid like that we often imagine that we think something, and we do think certain things. But most of the time, we're playing with something. So if we haven't tweeted it or we haven't written it down and presented to other people, when we do that, it becomes, in a sense, fixed. It's performative. You know, if I say, right. I like this book, I must then defend that I've liked this book from somebody who says that they don't like this book. Hmm. But in the real world, what happens is, of non-written-down human language and human thought, is we'll, we'll say stuff, and some a friend will say, well, you know, what about this? And you'll say, you yeah, know, that's true. Maybe... And we play with it. I think if we allow ourselves to be, humans are quite supple in how they think. And the sentences were meant to sort of have that suppleness. And so you said, in a sense, that the narrator changes their point of view. And the idea of who the narrator here is a bit unclear. But it is true that that the characters and the complexion of what's going on shifts. And the sentences are doing the work of hopefully allowing the reader to accept that shift.
1: Yeah, I think, I think that's just such a successful part of the book. I mean, it's a sort of disinterested narrator. And that which is great when you're throwing some big intellectual coals on the fire, and some kind of argumentative coals on the
2: fire, it's quite good to have a narrator who's got a fire extinguisher. Yeah, well, <laughs> in, in, the sense, in the sense that I think the narrative tries to leave room for the passion to come from the reader, instead of from the narrative voice. Mm. In other words, we're talking about stuff that creates strong feelings. So it isn't necessary for the sentences themselves to always have those feelings, the sentences can sort of present. And also the way that they, you know, partly I think what you're saying is this kind of disinterested or dispassionate. I think the effect of being disinterested or dispassionate maybe comes in part because the book is built with lots of commas and few full stops. And the effect of a full stop is that, you know. I did some counting. Yeah. I'm not, I've got, I haven't got
1: the stats, but you're yeah. right. There are some long it's, 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 long,
2: it's long sentences. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so in, in, a, in a comma, what happens, I mean, all punctuation is a pause. And, you know, writers use punctuation the way that musicians use, you know, breaks between notes. And so you set up your rhythms and your cadences. A full stop is a break. It's a time when you can stop and step back and, take and think, you know, wait a second. What do I think about this? The comma is a forward-leaning pause. You, you take a breath, but you keep going. You don't get to stop, really, on a comma. Now, the effect that creates is when emotional things are happening, if we don't stop and we go by them, in a sense, there's a, I guess, a dispassionate nature to that. Like, wait, this is something very important. And yet with the sentences going on, yeah. well, why don't we stop here for a second and, and assess? And partly the reason for that is that I guess the novel is trying to smuggle in experiences and, and slightly delay the reckoning of those experiences. So that I suppose it's the echo of the experience in the reader that the reader hears, as opposed to the pronouncement of the emotion of the experience that the the novel gives you.
1: Some top writing tips for any budding novelists out there from no less than Mohsin Hamid. And from one literary heavyweight to another, Ali Smith made a trip into Midori House to discuss her latest novel, Companion Piece. The book brings together the specific hardships of the pandemic and mythic history through her typically playful use of language. Here is Ali on the unexpected role a Beatle played in the making of Companion Piece.
8: This book has a lot to do, and there's no way of even explaining this with Paul McCartney. When I was in the middle of writing this book, and the book features curlews, mm-hmm. uh, the birds with very, very long, beautiful beaks, who are now under a great pressure um, of extinction. Actually. Sandy
1: describes. Sorry to interrupt. Mm-hmm. Yes, Sandy go. describes them as having a beak so long. It was just God was trying to see how, what he could get away with or God something. God was
8: trying to draw the longest line he yes. could do to see what he could get away <laughs> with. So Curlews, this is partly about Curly." So I'm writing this book. I'm in the middle of writing it. You're looking over my shoulder, obviously, Yeah, um, yeah. Robert. right? You know. so
1: popping a polo mint in. <laughs> so you don't, you'll...
8: <laughs> Not generous, but it's polo. One for me. Yeah. Um, um, I was sitting in the middle of it thinking, this is just, what on earth? Why am I? What is this about Curly's? What is this? About? I am going mad with this. And maybe I should just, this is just rubbish. I'll just put it in the bin. As I think it in the middle of every book. Uh, actually, but particularly mm. with this one, I'm like, oh, this is between tragedy and farce. How do those two things? How do I balance? How do we balance those things? Tragedy and farce, which I think is that that time we've just been through taught us to pussyfoot between those words Mm. tragedy and farce and those states anyway curly's. I think right this is nonsense I'm going to stop and and see where it wants to go and anyway at that point I got an email from the publicist at Penguin who said would you like to ask Paul McCartney a question he's going to be doing a a show at the South Bank and people get to ask him questions would you like to ask him one my mind went blank (laughs) Paul McCartney me asking him a question you know I mean my version of Paul McCartney is in my three year old self when my cousins used to phone the house and pretend to be him (laughs) and I I was like I'm speaking to him Beetle at the age yeah. of anyway, that's you know, um <laughs> but a
1: and were they were I, their impersonations any good?
8: I was convinced. <laughs>
1: well, most, most three-year-olds are fairly bit of
8: Paul. It was all the Beatles but Paul was my favourite. So yeah. um, anyway, where was I? <laughs> it, I, was I know. Um, a question for Paul. The question yeah. for Paul. So I didn't do anything about it for about 10 days. And then I wrote back and said, OK, I've got a question. And she wrote back and said, no, oh, it's too late now. But what's the question anyway? So I, I sent the question. And the question was, it wasn't really a question. It was more a statement. It's wonderful that you, on your Scottish farm, let... Your sheep die of old age. Okay. I just wanted to say that's a really extraordinary thing because he does. The, his sheep live the full lifespan of a sheep. I mean, they're sheared so that they can the wool's used, but they don't get killed for meat. Mm-hmm. They they live till they die of old age. A- astonishing, a wonderful thing. And so I sent that question off, and of course it was too late for the South Bank. But then, about three days later, someone else wrote back to me and said we sent Paul your question and he's answered it and there's an email, there's a blog rather and here's the link in the email so I clicked on the blog and here's Paul McCartney answering the question and he says, oh, we loved the farm. We went there and it was when London was quite hard to be in and Mm. Linda and the kids and I we just had the best time on the farm. It was such open air, such a wonderful thing to do. We loved it. We loved it. And We saved a lamb from the cold. I remember it waking up after it was frozen. It was a wonderful thing And, and then there are the curlews he said, ah. and they fly in and they're so beautiful and they make the most amazing sound and they land like beauty itself kind of thing. is kind of what he said. And then I thought, oh, no, I'll keep writing this book.
4: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, OK, thanks, <laughs> no, Paul. I know. OK. Yeah, really. That's amazing.
8: Know. Well, that's as chancy and as random as the cracks in the pavement are. I mean, you, you take your chances. You yeah. Know? Yeah.
1: Ali Smith there on Paul McCartney showing that the idea to focus on curlews in her novel did, in fact, have wings. The musician Benjamin Clementine definitely has wings, and he spoke to us about the release of his third album, And I Have Been, which was recorded high in the Santa Monica hills. Here he is talking about which aspects of California rubbed off on him during the songwriting process.
9: Definitely in the production, yeah, definitely because mm. that's 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 when I learn how to produce music, you know, mm. on the mountains with a lot of gears, you know, right, a lot of them, yeah, you know, and now I'm kind of broke, man, <laughs> <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, uh, and also um, my 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 wife Florence, uh, she she is really into, you know, kind of Americana, you know, yeah. kind of kind of music, and yeah. and, uh, you know, I I I'd I'd you know listen to, whatever she had, you know put on you know on the mountains um, and that's kind of nice right I like that, yeah. that
1: you're, you that she's prompting you with with music with records with new stuff she's heard old stuff she's got
9: yeah yeah and, and she grew up listening to a lot of American music I grew up listening to classical music So mm. it's a big difference you know? yeah right but on the mountains yes on the mountains um you know I wake up to rattlesnakes you know yeah. they actually live under our property have you yeah, got snakes.
1: what do you need to? Well, how do you make it through the day? I I wouldn't get on particularly well. Really? I mean, no. Yeah. Well, I don't know. You know, like it's that thing when you wake up and you feel. like, I woke up once in Italy with a scorpion on my pillow, mm-hmm. and I think I feel <laughs> forever more I've <laughs> been quite a locker of doors. Oh yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, what do you need? A cleft stick or something? How do no, you no, get a no, rid of the rattlesnake? No, Leave them alone.
9: Leave them alone. I, the first time when we, when we went there the first time, uh, I was um, outside um, smoking at six a.m. It sunrise. It's really beautiful. Uh, as I was standing there, um, I look at my right and I see this this snake, this long black snake. Just still it was very fearful. But I stood there and I you know, we all like stayed somewhere in the ethos or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. And after thirty seconds it, it left. You know? And I stare uh, it down. You no see. i didn't know
10: <laughs>
9: i pretended i didn't see it okay but it saw, it saw me and we was just standing there and, yeah and, and then left and from that day on i've I've never been scared of pretty much anything anymore you okay. know yeah.
1: i thought you were going to use it i thought you said you'd used it as percussion <laughs> <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> and, uh, and on funny. rattlesnake <laughs> it's ted to <at> the rattlesnake <laughs> no i felt that <laughs> I mean, that's, that's true. I mean, this is what all great artists do, Benjamin, you know, you need to, you need to fold that into your working practice. This <laughs>
9: sound of this tail rattling around. No, 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 around. no, no, you don't, you don't, you don't kill them. No, you leave them, leave them be. Okay. You know? Yeah. They're, okay. They're, they're lovely, lovely, lovely animals. You know? <laughs> they are. I don't you like
1: snakes? I don't know whether we're, I'm sort of, you know, we're in the UK here. I mean, we only have a couple, don't we? So we don't have a lot of confrontation with snakes, I suppose. Mm, mm, mm. But yeah, I think I'd go for a warmer. More of a cuddly... Snakes are warm. More of a warm and cuddly kind of... Snakes are very warm. I'll take your word for that. The composer and sometimes snake whisperer, Benjamin Clementine, coming to us live. You just heard part of my conversation there with Benjamin Clementine. You'll have to listen to the full show to find out whether we did, in fact, get to talking about the music. And our final highlight today comes from the Booker Prize winner, George Saunders. Known as a master of the short story form, his latest collection, Liberation Day, contains tightly constructed tales that are underpinned by a sense of dystopia. You mentioned politics. I'd like to talk about, talk about that and the light... If at all. I mean, the the most explicit story is an epistolary story in the middle of the collection from a grandfather to his grandson. I guess it sounds like a probably in America and probably in the near future. And probably um, it looks back on the last president of the United States. And that's the one that's most explicitly, I guess, about the reasoning out of politics and the reasoning out of of not doing anything and the danger of doing something, I suppose, as well. Was that written in that kind of crazy period of Trump's
10: administration? It was. It was was a few months before the 2016 election. And I made Uh an exception to all my rules. You know, I've always said, I don't write all explicitly about about politics. Right, right. (laughs) And I thought, I want to. You know, so that's an impulse I've learned to trust, is if you really want to, just go ahead. And that's one part of your life where you can totally indulge yourself. So I started out, the main thing was a kind of a, I felt the need to model a kind of tenderness. I don't have a grandchild, but I have daughters, you know, and mm-hmm. to say, you know, I'm really sorry that this is the America we're delivering to you. I'm deeply sorry about that. So the first draft was just him speaking to this imaginary grandson in a real intimate, tender, apologetic way, you know, and I felt good just to do that, actually, just to have it on the page. People who read the story said the same, that, well, it was nice to at least to hear that elegiac feeling mm-hmm. expressed. But then since it's ostensibly a story, you have to let something else happen. So you write the first draft, and then I'm kind of watching to see where this guy wants to differ from me. And he is a little less active than I hope I will be in that situation. He gets a little more quickly to the mindset that says, just keep your head down and enjoy your coffee. Enjoy the the day. Don't worry about the outside world. So I hope I I won't succumb to that if it comes to it. Um, But then suddenly he's a character. And so over the story, he... I think his facade cracks just a little bit by the end. He starts to think, well, maybe I, I was too inactive, you know. Yeah. But I think sometimes in you know in times that are difficult, just to hear somebody acknowledge it, you know, if you're if you and I are in a room or a little ho- house and there's a wolves outside howling, and I say, isn't it a great day? Everything's going very well, you know. <laughs> that makes you more anxious actually, because you think what, you know. But yeah. if I say I'm really worried about the wolves then at least we can start to kind of talk about it. So I think sometimes fiction has that function. Chekhov said it doesn't have to solve problems. It just has to formulate them correctly. So to have two human beings say, this is going on, isn't it? Yes, it is. That's that's not nothing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talking of Chekhov, I read Liberation Day with a copy of A Swim in a Pond
1: in the Rain Mm -hmm. sort of – in my memory in my left hand kind of thing, thinking about some of the things you'd written about the, the Russians, the novelists, that is, we should say this is an important show. kind of, of cross-check it and see if I, if I <laughs> yeah. did what I said you should do. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, and, that, and it bears scrutiny, <laughs> George Saunders. <laughs> and a lot of that is about, I think you call it the physics of the story and the kind of strategizing of that. Yes. Is that something you're thinking about? Do you have a kind of chess set
10: or a kind of murder wall in your, in your study or does it just come with the flow? You know, I was an engineer to start with, and then I mm-hmm. got to writing late, and I felt a little outgunned. I, I was in a writing program with a lot of Ivy League kids. So I tried f- for a while to have theories about writing, you know, and none of them, I, they weren't sophisticated enough, and I couldn't, it didn't help me work. so. In the end, I went back to the basic, which is you you start a story with a relatively blank mind, Mm -hmm. and then you start reading, and seven pages later, you're somewhere else. So I thought, well, the roots of everything, criticism and also of production, have to be in there somewhere. If you track your mind as you're reading a story, you're going to find out where it means what it means, you know if a story isn't working you can identify the exact place where it stops working yeah. if a story is sexist or racist you can identify the exact phrase where you felt that so that's a really powerful tool and you know it's not you can forget about the muse you can forget you don't forget have to
1: be an expert that's any reader presumably exactly. right any you of the... know when it's slipping or you know when it's tightening up 100% yeah. if if
10: you've done you know i mean if you've never read anything maybe not but if you know a normal reader absolutely has that power so that then the trick becomes noticing inflections of the mind and then secondly being able to articulate them. But it's a very powerful tool because you it's a method of teaching you to trust your own reactions. Yeah. You know. It's kind of scary stuff because you don't get to pull in the you know, the sophomore year thematic tidbits. You just have to really say, How did it how did it affect you? Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah
1: george saunders taking us home as that is it for today's show and the shows for this year we've loved bringing you monocle on culture throughout 2022 and we really hope you've enjoyed listening we'd love to hear your thoughts on the program and what you'd like to hear more or less of next year and you can get in touch with us through sophie's email that is smc at monocle.com. be kind monocle on culture is produced of course, by Sophie Monahan Coombs and Steph Chonggu. And Steph also edits the show. We will be back at the same time next week, next year, for our first show of 2023. But until then, from me Robert Pound, thank you very much for tuning in. <laughs>